The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Well, we are starting a new series today called Simple, uh, Unclouding the Christian Faith. And and ironically enough, uh, the the point of the series, the premise behind this series is actually quite simple. Uh, What what we want to do is we want to look at those areas of the Christian faith that sometimes get a little bit cloudy, get a little bit fuzzy, and we want to bring some clarity to them so that we can better follow Jesus and better live in his grace. And so the topics that we've chosen over the course of about the next six weeks are are pretty central topics to the Christian faith. These these are major themes in the Christian faith that we want to uncloud. So today we're looking at the person of Jesus. Next week we're going to look at the gospel. Week after that, we're going to look at the law. After that, we're going to look at the, the church. What does it mean to be the church? Week after that, we're going to look at the life of the Christian. Uh, and then the week after that, we're going to look at what happens when you die, the death of the Christian. What does all this mean? And so these are not small topics, right? These are central, key components to the Christian faith. They're core to what we believe and who we are as God's people here. And, and the reason we want to uncloud these is because they're so central, is because they're so core. See, when something that is core gets cloudy... The result is disaster. When something that's central is clouded, the result is disaster. For example, uh, my wife and I and, and our family, we just bought our first house about a month ago. And, uh, and this house came with a koi pond. All right, I'm very excited. And, and I was pretty excited about this koi pond because I thought, hey, it's cool. It'll be fun for our kids. They'll, they'll have, you know, little fish back there that they can see. And it'll teach them responsibility as they grow up. It's going to be awesome. And, and so very excited about it. And, and honestly, the first three weeks, it went really well. Like, we... We fed the fish. Uh, I fixed the filter twice. It was a big homeownership win for me. Uh, we, we, uh, we, we got some, some algae killer in there. Like, things were looking good. Things were going all right. Then this past week, I noticed that the water level was getting quite low. And so I thought, all right, no problem. Stick the hose in there for like an hour. Should be fine. So I do that. And, and then after an hour, I went to turn the hose off. It was night, so I didn't go check the pond out. Went to bed. Got up the next morning and checked the pond. It was clear as it had ever been. The water was where it was supposed to be. And every single fish was dead. Belly up, 30 fish dead. I killed them all with a garden hose, right? Now, turns out you can't just water a koi pond with an hour's worth of water. There's too much chlorine in our water, which makes me a little nervous about us drinking it. But at any rate, uh, apparently there's too much chlorine in the water and, and it kills all the fish. Now, anyone who owns a koi pond and has a brain knows that, right? And so they're not going to do that and they're not going to kill off all their fish. But for me, it's this, this cloudy area that's central to the caring of koi fish. And the result was death. The result was disaster. Now, when it's about koi fish, it's maybe a little funny. Apparently, really little funny. Um, but, but, but when it has to do with, with things of, of magnitude, of ultimate meaning, of ultimate significance, questions of, of what this world is really about, questions of who God is and why he matters in our faith and, and how our life involves, when things are cloudy in core areas like that, it's a much bigger deal. When you don't have a clear understanding of who God is, you relate to him in really unhealthy ways. You can relate to people in really unhealthy ways. You can live your life in really unhealthy ways. And so our goal for this series is to uncloud the faith, to make that which is core to what we believe crystal clear. Crystal clear. And so today we start with the person of Jesus Christ. Because there is nothing more central to the Christian faith than the person of Jesus Christ. You don't get him right, you don't get anything right. 
You get him right and everything fits together. And so that's what we're going to dig into today. So let's get going. Let's dig into Jesus. So several years ago, I read a book called Who Is This Man? Uh, and, and in this book, the, the author John Ortberg uh, argues that, that Jesus is the most influential man in the, the history of the world. And he just sort of goes through to see the ripple effects of Jesus' uh, influence. But in this book, uh, Ortberg makes the case that Jesus is the most influential man in the history of the world, but not in kind of the traditional way that people are influential, right? He didn't raise up a great army and, and rise to political power. Uh, he, he, he wasn't very popular during his time. In fact, when Jesus died... It seemed like whatever mark he left on the world was just going to disappear. And yet, of course, we all know as centuries have gone by, his influence hasn't diminished, but it's actually increased. That now, 2,000 years later, he has more followers on earth than ever before. And his followers are about as diverse as they get. Have you ever noticed that? Right? you got everyone from, from Jesse Jackson to Mike Huckabee, Right? Anne Lamott, Thomas Kincaid, Billy Graham, Billy Sunday, Bill Clinton, Bill Shakespeare, all the bills. You have Bono and Bach, Galileo, Isaac Newton, Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Akempis, Leo Tolstoy, T.S. Eliot, J.R.R. Tolkien, George Washington, Denzel Washington, George Washington Carver, all the Washingtons, right? You got Stephen Colbert, Bill O'Reilly, both claim to be followers of him. Tim Tebow, my boy Aaron Rodgers, touchdown Jesus, right? We go on and on about the immense diversity of people that have said, there's something about that guy that I'm going to give my whole life to chasing after. So who is he? Author H.G. Wells wrote this. A historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is what did he leave to grow? Did he start men to thinking along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? By this test, Jesus stands first. I love this quote by H.G. Wells, right? He says, hey, I'm not a Christian, but because I've got some intellectual integrity, he just says, I've got to say, when I look at Jesus, he was the most influential man in the history of the world. His fingerprints are absolutely everywhere. And so who is he? Who is he? Well, to answer that question this morning, we're going to look at how he answers it. What does Jesus say about himself? And what we'll see is that there's three parts to his answer. First of all, we'll see who he claims to be. Then we'll see how he backs that up. I went down in numbers. How he backs that up, and then we'll see why it matters, okay? We'll see who he claims to be, how he backs that up, why that matters. All right, so let's go. If you look with me, if you've got your Bibles open, otherwise we'll have it up here, verses 3 through 5. It says this. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. All right, so this band of soldiers and religious leaders, they go up and they say, Hey, we're looking for this guy named Jesus. Jesus steps up and he says, I am he. Now, at face value, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. But there's something I want you to understand here, that when it says, I am he... Uh, that's, that's actually a, a move by the translators into the English edition to add that word he. Okay, there's really no object to the verb I am there. Are you tracking with me? So in the original Greek, there's only two words. Jesus just says, I am. Ego eimi, I am. 
And this is a really, really big deal that that's how Jesus identifies himself. They say, we're looking for Jesus. He says, I am. Why is that such a big deal? We go way back to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 3. Moses is talking to God, burning bush. And, and, and God says, hey, go back, set my people free from slavery. And Moses says, all right, I'll do that. Uh, but who should I tell them sent me? What's your name? And God says, I am. Right? He just says the Hebrew verb, verb to be. We transliterate it as Yahweh. I am. That's the divine name is I am. That's, what, that's how God identifies himself. I am. Now, why does that matter? See, whenever you or I use the to be verb in English, whenever we say I am, we always have to have an object or a cause, right? We have to say, I am a man. I am a person. I am feeling well. I am incredibly handsome. I am incredibly humble, right? It's, it, okay, good. All right. God doesn't need an object. God doesn't need a cause. He just is. He is the cause. He is the ultimate object. He doesn't depend on anything to define him. Everything depends on him. He just is. I am. And that's an amazing claim. But check this out. What's even more amazing is that a human being, Jesus of Nazareth, a guy who actually walked the streets of first century Palestine, claimed to be one with that God. That's what he's doing right here. A human being saying, I'm God in the flesh. Now think about how much that rubs against our modern sensibilities. Let's follow with me for a second here. In a secular culture, the thinking goes like this. Ah, of course, yes, there's, there's many great religions many great thinkers out there, and they all have their little piece to play, and they all kind of say the same thing. So you pick the one that sort of rings most true with you, who you are, helps you find meaning in this world. You pick that one, and then you just carry on. They're all kind of the same. But we see right here, quite clearly, they're not. Right? See, every other religion, worldview, philosophy, ideology, whatever you want to call it, Every other one, this is how it works. The, the great teacher, the great prophet says, hey, you want to know the truth? You want to know the ultimate meaning in the world? You want to know God? You want to know how things work? Listen, let me point you to it. Let me show you how to do it. Let me show you the way. Listen to what I'm saying, and this will point you to ultimate truth. But Jesus says, I'm not going to help you find God. He says, I am God, and I'm here to find you. You see how utterly different that is? It's radically different. See, Jesus' claims about himself mean either he is who he said he was, and if that's the case, man, you should get down on your knees and say, I'll do whatever you want. Or his claims about himself mean he's an absolute lunatic, a megalomaniac on the level of Charles Manson, and you should have nothing to do with him. But see, a tepid response to Jesus makes zero sense. There's no intellectual integrity there. Makes zero sense. You know who really gets this well? Bono. You didn't see that coming. Bono, right? Not only did he force you to get a U2 album on your iTunes account, uh, but he also understands Jesus really well. Uh, in 2005, a, a book came out. Uh, there was a series of interviews that he did with a, a French music journalist named Michka Aseas. And in part of the book, uh, Aseas and Bono are talking about Jesus. And Isaiah uh, puts this question on Bono, and he says this to him. Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, isn't that far-fetched? And check out what Bono says. No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. 
He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. If only we could be a bit more like him, the world would be transformed. When I look at the cross of Christ, what I see up there is all my sins. Okay, sin. he doesn't say sins. Okay, uh, and, and every, it's sermon, all right? We keep PG-13. Uh, and, and everybody else's. Uh, so I ask myself a question a lot of people have asked. Who is this man? And was he who he said he was? Or was he just a religious nut? And there it is. And that's the question. See, and you thought you just liked Bono because he wrote with or without you. Right? It's a good answer. It's a good answer. He gets it, man. You can't have a shred of intellectual integrity and respond tepidly to Jesus. Either he's crazy or he's the Lord. And so someone says, okay, Gabe, all right, I'm with you. Maybe he's crazy. How do I know his claim is valid? Well, look with me at verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. All right, let's pause here for a second. So Jesus takes the divine name, he says, I am, and a cohort of Roman soldiers falls to the ground. Well, what's going on here? Well, this, this cohort of Roman soldiers would have been a minimum of about 200 people and probably upwards of 500 to 600 fully armored Roman soldiers, battle-hardened, tough dudes, right? And this rabbi, carpenter, philosopher guy says two words, they hit the ground. What's that about? Well, here's what's going on. Jesus is, is flexing a little. He's showing off a little bit. He's showing off his divinity. See, throughout the entire scriptures, there's this consistent theme that when people encounter the presence of God, they can't stand. When people truly come in the presence of the divine, they can't stand. And so 2 Chronicles, God's Shekinah glory falls on the temple and the priest's legs turn to jelly. Ezekiel, the prophet, gets his call. He hits the deck. Isaiah gets the call from God. He can't even look up. When Simon Peter finds out who Jesus actually is as the Son of God, he falls on his knees and he says, Go away from me. I'm a sinful man. See, it's this consistent theme. People cannot stand in the presence of God. When you get a glimpse of God's glory, you lose your footing. And the reality is, even beyond what Scripture says, there's sociological evidence that backs this up. It's kind of amazing. Uh, I just discovered this this week. Uh, Rudolf Otto, who's a, a sociologist uh, who, who studied religious experience across different cultures, uh, he conduct, conducted a series of studies of religious experiences from across cultures, and this is what he concluded. Uh, he noted that when a person truly experiences the divine, when they really encounter God, their first reaction is what he called the mysterium tremendum. Mysterium tremendum. The terrifying mystery. That this sociologist, he's not a Christian, not from a Christian background, he just says when people seem to encounter the divine, what they encounter is mysterium tremendum, a terrifying mystery, that there's something so great, something so wholly other, something so different and so much greater than a human being can take in, that it's actually terrifying. It knocks them flat. So what Jesus is doing here is he's backing up his claim. He's flexing his divinity. 
And this, of course, could be a one-time fluke, right? Like, hey, maybe like, one soldier tripped, and it was like dominoes, and they all, they all went down, and that's, that's what's going on, right? That, let's just be uber skeptical. Let's say that's the case, okay? You look at the story of Jesus again and again and again. He does things that only the divine can do. He calms seas. He heals the sick. He forgives the sins of people. In fact, this story itself, John, uh, in the arrest of Jesus, he doesn't record this part, but after Peter chops off the guy's ear, what does Jesus do? He just picks it up. He's like, boop, you know, Mr. Potato Head, right back in, right? Listen, but the greatest way that Jesus backed up who he said he was was he rose from the dead, right? Just think about this for a second. A guy comes in and he says, I am God. And people say, you are crazy. Go to the cross. They kill him, and he comes back to life. If a guy does that, I just want to tell you, church, listen to him. Jesus claims to be divine and then backs it up by raising from the dead. And so as Christians, this is what we put our hope in. This is what we base our hope on. So a couple weeks ago, I was uh, speaking at a family camp in northern Michigan. And, uh, and my, my gig there was to speak for 45 minutes every morning. And, and so I'd speak to about 150 adults at this camp. Now, why anyone on their vacation would want to listen to me for 45 minutes in the morning is beyond me, okay? But there's a few crazies out there. They came back today. Um, but but that's, that's what you want to do. I'm not going to judge, all right? So that's what they did. Uh, at any rate, one of the folks who was there every single day was this guy who has a, a PhD in Eastern philosophy, and, and he teaches at uh, the University of Hawaii. And he looks exactly like a guy who has a PhD in Eastern philosophy and teaches at the University of Hawaii, right? Like tall, tan, just kind of like flip, wore flip-flops all day, wore a Hawaiian shirt every single day, and it wasn't to be ironic or funny. Like, it just made sense. I was like, wow, I've never seen that actually look good on someone, but there it is. You've done it, buddy. Except for you, Tony. It looks great on you. Um, and, uh, and he would do the, like, the, the hang loose thing, and it wasn't, I was like, we don't do this in Detroit. You know, like, it was just, it was just weird for me. Uh, but, but he did it. He was a great guy. Anyways, end of the week, you know, he's obviously much smarter than I am, so I wanted to get his feedback on kind of how he thought I did, I did and, and what he thought about the, the whole thing. And, and he was very complimentary, which is very nice. And then I asked him, I said, so how about you, man? Like, where do you stand on Jesus and faith and, and church and all this stuff? And, and he told me, he said, Gabe, you know, I guess you could just kind of consider me a skeptic. He said, I don't really want to land on anything in particular. I think there's a divine sort of something. If you want to call it a cosmic Christ, that's fine. I may call it like a cosmic Buddha. But I think there's just kind of, there's something out there, but I don't want to officially say what it is. And so I said to him, well, what do you do with the resurrection of Jesus? And because he's, you know, well-read, I said, I mean, even the most skeptical of scholars have to recognize that something incredibly significant happened after his death. I said, so, so what do you do with that? What do you do with Jesus' resurrection? And he said, yeah, Gabe, you know, I don't think uh, empirical historical accounts are a good basis for faith. I was like, what? And, and he went on. He said, well, Gabe, just, I know. And he went on. He said, like, like what if one day there was undeniable proof that Jesus didn't actually raise from the dead? He said, would that shatter your faith? Would that ruin your faith in him? And I thought about it, and I said, yeah, it absolutely would. It absolutely would. This is what Scripture says, 1 Corinthians, St. Paul says, if Christ is not raised, then our hope is in vain. Listen, either Jesus really is who he said he was, and he backed it up with his resurrection, or else I'm done. 
And then he said to me, I didn't get that passion when I talked to him. It was just a little conversation. But he said to me, all right, man. Uh, that's cool. He said, I, I got to go, but I would love to talk to you more about that. We'd love to pick your brain more on that. So he goes, if you're ever in Hawaii, you look me up. And I was like, well, pastors go to Hawaii a lot. Um, but I did tell, well, this is what I actually said. I said, well, maybe I can convince my congregation to send me on a mission trip there to save your soul. And, and he, he laughed and he said, well, tell your congregation I fully support that mission trip. So just so you know, we are going to start the Send Pastor Gabe to Hawaii Mission Fund right after this sermon. Uh, given my propensity to drink a lot of pina coladas, we're going to have to raise a fair amount of dollars, all right? But I believe in you, okay? Uh, but seriously, I, I, I tell you that story because I want you to see how important it is that Jesus backed up who he said he was. That he's not just another prophet, he's not just another teacher, he's not just another sage, that he's God. And he's backed it up. And if he didn't, then we shouldn't listen to him. But he did. And so, of course, it requires faith to believe in him as your Savior. It requires faith for you to believe in him as your Lord. But it's not a pie-in-the-sky faith that we have that just sort of helps us sleep at night. No, it's a faith that's grounded in a reality that says God invaded history and he revealed himself to us as the person of Jesus Christ. But here's the deal. It's one thing for Jesus to be divine, but as we, we talked about earlier today, all right, so he's divine. If, if the experience of the divine, if that knocks us flat, if that shakes us to our core, what hope do we have of ever knowing God? What hope do we have of relating to this God, of being loved by this God? Well, let's see what kind of God Jesus is. In our text, as Jesus is being arrested, Peter pulls out his sword, hacks off a guy's ear. I don't know why it was the ear. If it's like, they're taking him. Go for the ears. Like, I don't know why he does that, but, but that's what he does. And, uh, and Peter, or Jesus stops Peter, and he says this to him, verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He says, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The cup. Man, what is the deal with this cup? What's the cup? What's Jesus talking about? Well, a consistent image in the Old Testament for the wrath of God against sin, for his judgment against sin, is this cup of suffering. That when his judgment falls, it's going to be like pouring from a cup. And it's going to be his divine judgment falling on those of us who have sinned and fallen away from him. And so what Jesus says to, to, to Peter here is he says, the cup of divine judgment that's meant for the world, I'm going to go take it. The cup of divine judgment that's meant for everyone who's ever wronged anyone who's ever sinned against God. That's his wrath against sin. It's all going to fall on me. I'm going to take the wrath. I'm going to take the punishment. I'm going to take care of all that so the division between you and God isn't going to exist anymore. You're going to be able to stand before the divine and not fall to, your, to the ground. It's not going to shake you to your core. You're going to be able to walk into his presence with great joy because Jesus is going to take the cup of suffering. He's going to take the wrath of God for you. Think about how amazing this is. Jesus is God. He's got every right to judge us and give us what we deserve. But instead, he chooses to drink the cup himself. He is the judge who is judged. He's condemned. He's found guilty. That's what happens on the cross. And because of that, he's declared you innocent, forgiven, 
restored. No matter what you've done in the past, no matter what you'll do in the future, no matter what you did this past week, no matter what you'll do this next week, doesn't matter who you are. You put your trust in Jesus. You recognize he took the cup for you, and so you stand before God, loved and forgiven and embraced, that you're his kid now and forever. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's taking your cup of suffering so you can stand before God with no fear of condemnation, no fear of judgment, no fear of rejection. So my prayer for you today is that you put your faith in him, that he's the great I am, that you let him guide you through the clouds of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus, that we might know you, that you revealed yourself to us and it's not some, some great mystery, it's not some, some, some crazy thing that we got to figure out on our own, but you showed us who you are, you showed us your characteristics, that you are a God of grace, that you're a God of love, that you're one who embraces us. That Jesus took the cup of suffering for us, that we might enter into your presence unafraid, but fully embraced by you. Lord, teach us to run to you, teach us to know you, teach us to rest in your embrace, this day and every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.